Welcome to the very first episode of Rally for Results. I'm your host, Claire Richards, and I am incredibly excited to be here today. We have been working on this concept for about a year now, so I'm thrilled to be able to share it with you guys. So speaking of the concept, here's what we plan to do. We're going to bring brilliant people into this very room, and we're going to try to uncover the things that they have done both in their lives and within their businesses that have led to success. And my hope is that you will be able to extract some of that goodness and apply it to your own lives. So you might have heard me say the word vodcast. That simply means video podcast. Uh, If you happen to be listening to this on your favorite podcast app, no worries. We will be talking, having a good conversation, and you might just miss some meaningful looks deep into the lens. So if you ever want to check out the video version of this, hop over to our YouTube channel. Okay, without further ado, our very first topic today, we're going to be talking about the center of human desire. Now, this is something I am kind of obsessed with. I think a lot of people are very interested in what motivates us as people, as individuals, as groups of people. And so I'm super excited to be talking about the center of human desire with our very first guest, Dan Soldner. Dan, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Dan Soldner. I'm the president at Layton Interactive, the marketing agency in uh, St. Cloud and Green Bay. All right. So... You started an agency, which to me signifies that at some point you put a stake in the ground and said, I understand enough about human desire that I feel I can help other businesses figure out what they need to do to tap into human desire. So I'm excited to be talking about that with you today. But before we dig in, I want to learn more about your background. Specifically, um, I know you went to school for economics. And I think uh, economics in general has some pretty interesting connections with the patterns that human behavior in general takes. So let's talk about that. Yeah, I was attracted to economics and also psychology was a a minor because really understanding how people think and how they make decisions is what's at the root of economics. Mm -hmm. Um, Macroeconomics, how large groups uh, and then micro, the individual make decisions is really, really what I was attracted to. And I think that lends itself nicely to both sales and marketing. I started my career in sales. um, And then in the last 10 years, um, especially when we started Leighton Interactive in 2009, we've really seen a blend of sales and marketing together. So yeah, that that served me well. Did you always know that you wanted to go into economics and sales and all of that? Um, No. Not at all. <laughs> in fact, when <laughs> like who has a little kid is like, you know what I really yeah, am dreaming of? I want to be a sales guy. Numbers. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I think I, I, I discovered that, um, you know, when I was in college, um, I went to the University of Minnesota Duluth. And, you know, the first uh, classes that you take are, you know, your lib eds, right? Your liberal education courses. Yeah. And, and I was forced to take an economics class, you know, an entry level econ. <laughs> class and I yeah. heard the professor was awesome, you know, and he was like easy on grades and stuff. So <laughs> perfect. Wore, yeah. He wore flip flops to class, like that kind of guy, Hawaiian shirt. He I'm actually, not a regular professor. I'm a cool professor. Yeah. Like a button down Hawaii shirt. Um, but anyway, I, I went there and I just, I was like one of those moments where I just like, whoa, this is really interesting to me because 
it blended math and you know human decision making like what's your motivation uh behind mm -hmm. why you do things um and so um i switched my major you know and i had switched it um a couple of times but i switched it from business um over to econ um not thinking that i was going to go be an economist mm -hmm. um but thinking that that would serve me well in my career because i started to realize i was interested in sales and marketing um and and really just you know applying that to business um so i know one of the very first uh careers that you had outside of school was as a sales analyst right well actually i started as a sales rep uh, i started gotcha. as a manufacturer's rep um, for a big consumer package of goods company i was in minneapolis i had a large territory with 400 accounts and i went out and i sold and then I was promoted to a sales analyst job, and I took that in Chicago. And um, yeah, I was pouring over data in Excel spreadsheets. Ooh. So you know, getting down <laughs> to the like sixty-seven thousand rows of an Excel spreadsheet and just analyzing data, which was really what people were buying mm -hmm. at the store level, right? So scan data, what what people were, you know, uh, buying in terms of um, along with. Right. So like basket purchases. So if you buy milk, you know, a lot of times you also buy a donut or you buy if you buy this, you buy that. And so mm -hmm. just trying to, to figure out how to um, you know, help the company I was working for. But um, yeah, it, it lends itself nicely to that. And then and then I moved over into uh, beverage sales, uh, moved back to Minnesota and, um, you know, worked in a, in a company where we were uh, doing sales and marketing really blended. And so, uh, you know, merchandising, you know, distributing, marketing products uh, to, to sell at the store. And um, also very intriguing there, getting to work with big brands in both of those. And then, yeah, moving over into uh, latent enterprises and working in the radio broadcast business, but also launching the digital sales, you know, department, which we were monetizing the... Uh, radio stations audiences through digital platforms so you know in 2008 2009 um, you know figuring out how we could monetize the large following that we were starting to get on Facebook and um, you know an email databases right so mm -hmm. selling sponsorships to that and um, you know different ways to engage the audience and provide value back to sponsors um, and out of that really Leighton Interactive was born so when would you say was the first time you had maybe that aha moment of like, oh, I'm actually good at this. I'm good at anticipating what people want and what they need and desire. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't recall a, a first time, like, you know, a lightning bolt moment where suddenly I remembered yeah. <laughs> that. Um, but I, I, think, I think it was probably more in watching people do it for the wrong reasons. So okay. it wasn't like, oh, I'm good at this. It was more like, oh, they're sort of taking people's money and not doing any good with it. You know, mm -hmm. so watching, um, you know, marketing services companies or the media companies um, or even when I was in the beverage business, you know, beverage distribution of of watching companies buy advertising that was was really in no way helping their their brands, their companies or whatever, nor could they tell if they're getting a return on that investment. Um, so really it was probably my discovery of random acts of marketing and watching mm -hmm. people do it wrong. So sort of that philosophical problem of you're wasting money and you shouldn't be. So maybe a frugal upbringing, you know, um, 
you know, trying to like get the most out of your money mm-hmm. um, is is why that I was driven to, you know, performance and results based marketing. It's interesting that you talk about that. I was just having a conversation two days ago, actually, with someone about just the metrics of success, because I think a lot of people fall into that trap of, you know, maybe they invest in a billboard and then somebody a, a week later says, oh, I saw your billboard. And that feels like success just because somebody said something about that. But it doesn't actually necessarily mean that you're getting a significant ROI. Like it, it might not be leading to your ultimate goal, whether that be revenue or, you know, applicants for your company or whatever the ultimate goal is. Mm-hmm. Just having somebody say, oh, I saw your thing. Yeah. Well, it's a dirty little trick in media sales for sure. If you have a new advertiser on, there's going to be an immediate uh, response rate to the business owner uh, or to the, you know, the brand advocate. And so, yeah, you feature them in the ad. And then they go to their networking events. They go to their kids' softball game, and people are like, "I saw your billboard. I saw you in the in the newspaper. You know, I heard your radio ad." And they're thinking, "It must be working." Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't mean that it isn't working. Um, it doesn't mean that it isn't. Um, it just, um, you know, yeah. It it's uh, sometimes people are looking at the wrong metrics. Well, and and that is a great indicator that you're beginning to spread maybe an awareness, but that doesn't necessarily lead down to maybe some of the deeper core goals of Mm -hmm. revenue generated or what have you. And also, I think people have such a short attention span if they are measuring success based on that, right? Because people aren't going to just keep saying, I saw you in the billboard. I saw you in the billboard like every single time. Eventually, people are like, yep, your billboard, you know, and Mm -hmm. they don't bring it up. Yeah. Well, and I think, I mean, we're talking about human desire. So mm-hmm. uh, on, on that piece of it is that instead of, you know, f- uh, featuring the business owner or the bells and whistles or whatever, it's that, you know, I think what, what we're trying to do is get, get people to point the camera at their billboards, their ads, their, you know, their inbound marketing to the problems and the emotion of your buyer. So if you can spend the time to actually understand that, make your messaging about the problem that you solve for the buyer. Yeah. Your ego is not going to get stroked as much in the beginning. Um, Darn. <laughs> but on the other side, your, your marketing may actually uh, solve a problem and you could get a return on your investment by focusing on that desire that they have to solve the problem. You just have to have the stamina to see the results through. Yeah. It no matter what, I mean, even in even right now, we have we have more tools in front of us to measure what is working and what isn't than than ever before. Mm-hmm. It's the best time in the world to be a marketer. It really is in the history of of, of marketing. Um, and yet it's still a faith based um, endeavor, meaning you have to believe that it's going to work. You have to listen to experts around you and you have to believe. You have to do the right things every day to get ultimately get the result that you that you are wanting. You have to have faith in it. It's interesting you say it's the the best time to be alive as a marketer, which I think is true with all these tools at our fingertips. Uh, I think also maybe the most intimidating time because we are now measured up towards specific goals. And then the other thing I was just going to say is something I've been really interested in over the last six months or so is just the human centric side of marketing and how it might be the best time to be alive as a marketer, but it's kind of been a little hellacious for the consumer, right? Um, It's, 
it's so frustrating to be a consumer sometimes. Like every time I see an ad for something I bought three months ago, I just, I want to scream a little bit. Like, why are you showing me this? I already bought it. Aren't you smart enough? Don't you have the tech to tell you that I bought that thing? Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a frustrating time to be alive as a well, consumer. it's noisy. Trust is at an all-time low, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of uh, big corporations and their marketing messaging. Um, but if you go back to the root of it, like marketing, like market, right? That's where this is coming from, is that at, at one point there was a physical market and <laughs> you had to bring your goods or service to the market. And it didn't take very long for people to start, you know, human beings to start thinking, maybe I should do a little thinking into what the people will buy. Right before mm-hmm. I bring my cart, my booth, my goods, <laughs> my services down there. And so really what that was was the same thing we're doing now as we're thinking, what do people desire? You know, what do they want and need? Right? And if you were in a village or a community, you would have a, a sort of an innate understanding of what that is because you're in it. Right. Mm-hmm. You, you live in it. You know that, you know, fresh fish or fruits and vegetables or, you know, <laughs> the snake oil or like whatever. Like this is what people are clamoring for right now which was basically market research, right? Understanding what's going to be happening. Who are the buyers at the market and what do they want, mm-hmm. right? Because it wouldn't take very long for you to figure out you have to do that. All you had to do was show up and bring all of your stuff and realize nobody wanted it. And then you'd have to switch it up. And so competition in the marketplace um, is where that happened. And then advertising just started to be like print posters, right? And then, you know, outside the market, people were saying, hey, if you come, I'll be there and I have this, what you're looking for. Um, And so you can create that desire, right? By understanding how human emotion works, or you can align with what is already there in someone's, you know, human emotion or, or desire. So, so that's, that's why I think it's the best time to be alive as a marketer because of the tools and the technology and the data that we have. Um, and nothing's really changed. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're still doing the same thing as our ancestors did when they went to market, and then out of that came these great careers in marketing, <laughs> <laughs> which is that we know, both have the pleasure of being in. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, and I I mean I've been accused of oversimplifying things before, but really at the base of it, we're trying to understand, and this mm-hmm. is what inbound marketing is all about: is empathy, right? understanding uh, how people are making decisions from an emotional standpoint, right? We, we have this um, seek to understand first mentality. And so that's sort of caused a, a rift in, in, in the, um, uh, you know, pre-inbound marketing, pre-digital marketing, mm-hmm. where, you know, mass media really, really drove all of it. And if you couldn't buy mass media, then you were sort of left out, right? Like you, if you had a niche product or service that you sold throughout the world, you were left to trade publications and, and trade shows. Word of you know, mouth. Yeah, industry associations. Yeah, yeah, and word of mouth, right? And that's where relationship selling came from and all that. And now that that's all been broken. When they, they have all the tools to do what all the big brands used to be able to do. But going back and thinking about who's the buyer and what do they really care about, that's still underserved. Well, and even... Speaking in that vein, I think there's always, you know, hot topics that get thrown around like authenticity has been huge over the last couple of years. Like you need an authentic, an authentic brand. 
But people often take that as like, let's talk about the ping pong that we have in our break room. And and that's not the point. The point is talk about the things that your prospects care about, which is pretty rarely you, right? Right. And the, and don't get me wrong. There's been a lot of mass media and you know traditional media people that get it right too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really the ones that get it right are the ones that say it's not about the product or service. It's about what it does for you. Right. So um, when I was in radio, we had a trainer that would always say it's not it's not the uh, people don't buy the Harley Davidson because of the horsepower. They buy it for the wind in their hair and the bugs in their teeth. You know, it's the feeling you get. That's why you buy it. I I love that example. I wish I could remember, but I, I was listening. I think it was to a podcast or maybe I read it somewhere um, about um, a company that had brought a new type of metal to Harley specifically that didn't require as much cleaning. Like it it stayed cleaner for longer. And they actually shot it down because they were like part of the culture of owning a, a Harley is taking care of it and that process of caring for your your bike. And so they shot down a better product because it was going to dismantle one of the core features of their what their audience loved mm-hmm. being in that group being associated mm-hmm. with that group of people that that live by those so so yeah understanding and they they do they understand why people buy it um and so really i think that at the you know going back to to how i started um you know and and going to school for what i did and then selling and then getting into marketing was and blending those things mm-hmm. was really just like, and I continue to be fascinated and learn every day about that. I'm just constantly reading books and listening to podcasts that are, <laughs> that are helping me understand better, like why people do what they do. And I tell you, the more I do it, the more I stopped generalizing and labeling groups of people. And the more you start looking yeah. at each individual. Oh, man. I mean... I just even thinking about over the last six years, my experience at at Leighton Interactive and what we've done for, you know, personas. So building out your key audience or your prospects and trying to find ways to market to them. You start with that idea of, well, who are they? Can we generalize into this persona? And we've really started to move away from that because of that very reason. We're making really broad assumptions and generalizing so much about a very diverse group of people. Yeah, like women that are 35 to 44 love diamonds. Or, <laughs> right, or like men from this age to this age do this or do that or whatever. And it's like, hey, there's, you know, seven or eight billion people on the planet and not one of us has a fingerprint that's the same. What makes you think that any of us buy the same? Mm-hmm. What makes you think that any of us with all different worldviews, different perspectives, upbringings, you know, backgrounds, family, you know, legacies and everything. Like we all see and make decisions based on our own experience. So that's that's the part where technology can come in and really, you know, um, allow you to go through your buying process in a way that is, you know, suited to you. Like give them the wheel. They're in the driver's seat. Um, and so, and, I mean, you still have to, right? You still have to do some of that like persona grouping. Um, but, but ultimately, um, how can we move more towards that? Right? Like what if, what if we could, what if we could move 
towards in 10 years and 20 years from now, like individualizing marketing, you know, and it's happening. I mean, it's happening with, you know, um, you walk into a store and it recognizes your, recognizes your, um, you know, your IP or your phone and you're logged into Instagram and it's mm-hmm. you ads that are similar to that. And there's, there's so much of that crazy stuff in AI going on right now on, and, and big businesses. That- well, and that's interesting just in, from the standpoint of, you know, AI. I think a lot of people have this perception that it's an empty facsimile. Uh, you know, it's just trying to copy human behavior, but it could never do that because human behavior is too complex. And, and what makes up, you know, in the noggin, it's just too complex for machine learning but now I feel like there's just been such a shift in AI and now they're they're focusing less on trying to replicate and more about support. Like how can you support existing structures? Yeah. Yeah. I mean and it's ideological because it's um doing that for the masses just gets creepy really fast. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just gets really creepy when when you walk in they're like that's a little much for me when you walk into a store and they serve you an ad and you know whatever. But but still, I mean, it's there and it's like the Wild West. It's being explored and we're trying to figure it out. Um, but at the base of that, even if you just start with trying to understand them and serve them. So uh, understanding human desire is so important in marketing because it works. So it, instead of on your homepage or on in your content areas of your website, you know, instead of talking about your product specs, how great it is, um, you know, bells and whistles and everything that comes with it and, you know, all of our experience and look at the work we've done and all of that. Um, sometimes you can do those things, but doing it through the lens of what your buyer cares about um, and, and really just, you know, sort of hypothetically pointing the camera at them um, instead of you. Which is hard, too, because I think the the things that buyers care about are often the things that businesses are really, really nervous about talking about, like price. Mm-hmm. But yeah. what do they need to make their decision? And then answering those questions and just just continuing to be transparent and opening up opening up your your sales process a little process a little bit to let let them drive and let them be in the in the driver's seat of of making the decision. So earlier on, you talked a little bit about empathy. And so we have been going through some repositioning at Leighton Interactive recently and Empathy has played a, a pretty significant part in that. So maybe talk about that a little bit. How has it cropped up, I guess? <laughs> well, for our own brand, you know, as we look to, <laughs> to tighten up our brand and, and, and possibly reposition and, and rebrand our company. So if you're listening to this podcast and eight months from now, we might have a different name. Um, so that sounds so <laughs> ominous. Like, yeah. If you hear this and I'm not there, yeah. I've died. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, it's just, you know, we're, we're trying to do this for ourselves, too, because we, we, you know, we named our company Latent Interactive in 2009. And we were very much focused on web, you know, websites, you know, digital marketing, like, you know, doing social media management for companies. And as we've evolved and started to understand where our expertise lies and where we've built uh, clients and, and teams around, um, is really going all in on this empathy-based marketing. So that's, I mean, that's our niche. That's our strategic niche for a reason. And that's because we're seeing results. You know, we're helping companies really grow on a measure, measurable results uh, platform that, that we're just going to, we're leaning all into, which, which again, the only reason we're doing that is because we've spent time understanding our 
clients, our customers, our persona at Leighton Interactive, you know, a VP of marketing, a director of marketing, a business owner, we're listening to them, we're, we're interviewing them, we're di deep diving into what their problems are and positioning our brand around their problems. So trying to practice what we preach. Exactly. You know, people are struggling with connecting marketing to results. So so that's where we're building our brand is is this, you know, technology, brand and positioning and, you know, empathy based inbound marketing um, and sort of those three of those things coming together. So so, yeah, em empathy based marketing, I mean, you know, measurable empathy based marketing is is where it's at uh, for us um, and just trying to find companies that need help with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm really excited to see where the repositioning goes for all the reasons you said, like really digging into what our people, the ones that we want to work with, what they actually care about. So, and the word interactive, we'll see where that goes. <laughs> yeah. You and I have had lots of conversations about yeah. the word oh, interactive. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I mean, in interactive for some people just is so like web 2.0, <laughs> right? Like when we started, you know, yeah starting to think about mobile websites and things like that. That's where the interactive and very indicative of when Leighton yeah. Interactive started. Yeah. You know, using flash on websites and <laughs> you know, anytime something new came out in development, it's like, Oh, we got to put that on everything, but we never asked why. Um, and now it's, you know, no random acts of marketing ever mm -hmm. again. Right. Where we back everything up with data, take the guesswork out and say, the reason we're putting this button on the homepage is because, and then backing up the data on, on why we think that hypothesis is going to work and then measuring if it did and, you know, making changes ongoing. So with, I would say though, a balance of yes, the measurable part of that, looking at the data, making sure it works. But I think you had alluded to this earlier on, there's still a level of gut that is involved, right? You have to believe in it and trust in it. So I've seen that a lot where people want the numbers right away to help drive decisions, but those numbers don't always exist right off the bat. So to a certain degree, you have to be patient and, and trust your gut to get to the point where you can measure it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Oh, especially with brand and brand positioning. Yeah. You know, and, and, but data could look different. You know, data doesn't always have to be numbers. Absolutely. So data could be, you know, the, the feelings and emotions and, and things that their, you know, your clients, your customers have shared with us. Um, and that's that's data. You know, it's just it's qualitative data. So going back to this idea of desire, um, I, I think there's something interesting with the interaction between desire and fear. You know, I think, um, oh, gosh, there there's a quote out there and I'm going to totally botch it, but people will would rather work against their fear than work towards their desire. So they're, they're, all the things that cause them fear is what motivates them to do things. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, and I, I think a lot of people don't like to to think about that. Mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of ugly. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's maybe a little bit of a downer. But but if you think about how we're wired, I mean, we're, we're wired to avoid pain. Um, I always think about Jerry Rice, the great wide receiver, from San Francisco 49ers, do you anything? No. Okay, so, I'm afraid not. So the, I was more of a theater kid. Ar okay, <laughs> arguably the best wide receiver ever in the NFL. And there's mm -hmm. some people right now that are like, "No way, he's not." But um, I, I would agree that he probably is top five for sure. Anyway, and they interviewed him one time, and Jerry Rice was known for his work ethic. Right, this is a guy 
you know, uh, you know, Super Bowl champion, Hall of Famer. You know, he, you know, he was just wildly successful. They won a Super Bowl one time, and the next day, okay, imagine you won the Super Bowl. You've reached the pinnacle of your career as a football <laughs> player. What do you do the next day? Right, you only have a sleep few, in, yeah, or <laughs> sleep off a hangover, yeah, or right, going to Disney World, mom, like whatever. He was at the practice facility. Really, he was there practicing because he still thought he could get better. Wow! And they interviewed him, and they said, "They said, Jerry, you know what drives you? What what drives you?" And he said, "I I don't want to lose. I'm so scared of losing." Like, the, which the, is it sounds interchangeable with desire, right? Uh, yeah, but the fear of losing drove him to be better even after the day after winning a Super Bowl more than winning the Super Bowl like that that was over the top of it and I think I think there was a you know I I remember the show and it was kind of like yeah but I mean doesn't like winning and making millions and millions of dollars drive you he's like no losing I That's hate losing like motivated the, the, he was he was the fear of being beat was more so than anything else. That's what drove him to be a champion, and more than the desire to be great. Yes, oh, and I'm not that's fascinating. Yeah, and I'm not saying that's that's right for everyone, right? I mean, here we're talking about individual desires. Like that was right for him, but I, I think a lot of people can 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 get on board with that because you know, really, what is driving you? You know, the fear of failure or mm -hmm. the desire to win. Well, and I know you were very involved in sports, so I mean, what what how did being in sports influence everything else? We've talked about your education background and your career background, but what about that? Well, competing to win, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, and not knowing the outcome, but also that I think um, ability to work hard to succeed, you know, so in sports, you have to work hard to prepare to win. So you, you can't just show up. Yeah. Right? Like, as athletically gifted as I'm sure you are, Claire. Oh, thank you. You could not. You. you could not just show up on a tennis court today and like be compatible with Serena Williams, right? Oh, like, you probably <laughs> would lose very, very quickly, even if you had a lot of natural ability. So, yeah. if you wanted to even play at a at an amateur level, you're going to have to practice and practice and practice, and that's the same in 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 so many areas of life. But I think for me, yeah, just sports were were that that to compete and win. But um, I think I think, you know, being a champion or, you know, reaching that high level was was probably very motivating for me um, versus the fear of losing. Um, but once I was in the competition. Right. Yep. Now I'm in it. I don't want to lose. You know, makes sense. Mm -hmm. So let's divert just a little bit. I have, I think, an interesting question. If the Internet just disappeared tomorrow what what would latent interactive become what would you do oh, wow <laughs> no Ooh, pressure <laughs> i should have read these questions before the before i don't know the if i shared that okay. one with you <laughs> all right so um what what would i like personally do or what would we do as a company both because your identity is very much tied with what you do, mm -hmm. I'm assuming, right? So yeah. you kind of live and breathe this every day. What would you do personally? And then how would you m move the company? Well, it's it's interesting. So I'm just going to start saying this and then we'll see if it comes out right. Um, <laughs> I, it's It actually is pretty simple is that, you know, we probably wouldn't do a lot totally different other than the fact that instead of gathering data on screens and publishing content there, we would be doing it by other means. 
And so we'd probably shift a lot of resources to trying to figure out, well, now how are we going to gather information that helps our clients understand how their customers buy? Right. So mm-hmm. we, would, we would probably crank up sort of the anthropological way of doing business, which is observing and being a sponge inside the walls of their company, um, listening and observing and understanding their brand and their voice and style and who they are, and then going and talking to customers so that whatever we, okay, in this apocalyptic world, can we still mail <laughs> stuff? Mail stuff? Yeah. I don't know. Can like, uh, the post office manage that without the internet? I think they can. Yes, because they did before. <laughs> that. Have they been doing it long enough yes. to figure that out? Yeah. So we could still send things to people yes. and we could still put posters uh, up. Allowed. We'll, okay. I'll allow it. All right. So we could still reach people through some means of content. <laughs> of course, we wouldn't know if they were opening it and reading it, um, but we would based on if they were interacting. Mm-hmm. Interactive. Uh, interactive. Here we, we go. We would. Here we, we would go. Know. And and if they're if if their business is growing, and ultimately that's the test. Yeah. You know, I mean, we still can't we can't measure everything, but we know if we can help a business go from from where they are today to where they want to be in terms of growth, new customers, the right types of employees, you know, and the, and helping them um, articulate their culture better so that they attract both of the same, right? Both yeah. good employees and good customers. Um, which is which is really just making sure that you've positioned yourself to talk to the right people. I think we would just continue to do that um, and really and really be more of a research company. Um, oh, that's so yeah. interesting to me. It, just this idea, like it's it feels so closely related. You said anthro- uh, anthropology would play a big part, and I think it already does, right? I I do feel very strongly that every day we are combining psychology, anthropology, sociology economics yes <laughs> yeah and sometimes i think you know the the technology and all the the bright shiny screens and everything mm-hmm. is a little bit of a distraction to that because there's so much work that just piles up in front of us we got to get those posts out we got to get those emails out and it's like take a pause maybe we should do that maybe we should take some days in the month at our company and just shut the computers down and think a little bit about how we could I go. I would love that. Yeah. <laughs> go observe and think and ask questions and 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 try to understand how people buy um, outside of those things. Well, I think about my own experience. So oftentimes I'll be building a site map and you would assume data is very important in that process. And it is, right? Looking at the data on their current site. But honestly, I feel like I never quite get to the the ideal solution until I take it completely off screen and I'm just really relying on what research had we done prior to that point what do we know about their consumers and then just me and a sheet of paper sketching it out trying to map it out and make sense of it off screen mm-hmm. yeah. yeah I think that's I think that's powerful and it's still very important okay last question <laughs> what are you most excited for in in 2020 Oh, well, I guess as a from a from a company perspective, you know, running a marketing agency in 2020, I'm I'm most excited about um, a couple of things. I'm I'm excited from a technology standpoint about the ability to do, um, you know, attributing uh, our uh, actions and behaviors to revenue and results. Right. So, you know, we're a HubSpot partner and HubSpot Enterprise is really stepping up its game big time on its ability to do this, right? This, this, uh, this multi-touch revenue attribution where, you know, we can look across 
the gamut of all of the tactics that we're deploying for a company and and get sort of uh, uh, an aggregate view of of how each of those is contributing to a customer acquisition. And, and that's very exciting, you know, mm-hmm. and, I, and it's not like that's a brand new thing. Um, I just think it's evolving now to a point where it's becoming graspable by, um, you know, those of us that aren't just, you know, like geniuses, right? Mathematically or from a software standpoint or whatever, like, like making it um, user friendly enough so that you can get actionable data as a, a medium sized business. Mm-hmm. So maybe a better way to put it is that it's becoming accessible to small to medium sized businesses. I'm excited about that. Um, and then I would say the other the other piece of it is um, is just our our evolution as an agency and in brand and repositioning uh, companies. Mm-hmm. That that part of it I'm very excited about for 2020 and the blending of those two. So um, you know you see a lot of agencies that were heavy into brand or traditional branding or traditional media, and then they sort of were forced to evolve into you know hiring some digital marketing people over the last decade. Yeah. Um, and I feel like we're kind of circling back the other way. Like we started in a web digital world and, you know, we, we got very, very good at that piece of it. And now that, that world, and, and we did, you know, we did logos and branding and visual identity and repositioning along the way. Um, but, that's, but it was never really the core focus per right. se. We did it because our clients needed it and we would bring in some expert people to help us with that. And now, um, for 2020, I'm I'm excited to 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 really watch that blossom and open up in our company because yes. that's the shut the computer screens off. And when you blend that with technology and then the ability to execute inbound marketing on top of it, I think that's that 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 triple threat, you know, mm-hmm. that that really drives results. So I'm excited about those two things, I guess I would say, among 25 other things. <laughs> <laughs> those those come to mind. Well. Thank you so much for joining me for the very, very first episode. We are going to talk to some pretty incredible people, and I'm so happy that you were the first one in that long, long list. All right. Well, thank you very much. All right. Thank you guys for joining us. If you are at all interested in hearing more episodes like this, please consider subscribing. We're going to be putting out some really incredible content, and I am so excited to bring you the good stuff. All right. Thank you.